Hello, everyone. My name is Matt Hollingsworth, and welcome to another episode of The Remote Show, where we discuss everything to do with remote work, entrepreneurship, business, technology, and much more. Thanks so much for listening. The Remote Show is brought to you, as always, by WeWork Remotely, the largest community of remote workers in the world. With over 220,000 unique users per month, WeWork Remotely is the most effective way to hire. My guest on today's show is Jason Freed. I'm sure most of you have heard or know of Jason and his work, but for those of you who don't, he is the co-founder and CEO at Basecamp, one of the leading project management and team communication software applications out there. We highly recommend you check out Basecamp.com if you want to make work feel like less work, which you should. Jason is also the co-author of Getting Real, Rework, Remote, and It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work. They also have a new ebook called Shape Up, which outlines Basecamp's approach to shipping meaningful products. You can go to basecamp.com slash shape up to get that content absolutely free. Jason, thanks so much for being on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Glad to be here. So I think what I typically do with these podcasts is I like to talk about how people got their start and then talk about a little bit what they're working on. I think in this case, most people know about you and about Basecamp. So I thought an interesting place to start would be to talk about what it is that you're most proud of over the past year, whether that's in Basecamp or otherwise. But what's the thing that you're most proud of that you've done over the past year? Well, whatever I say, I'll probably miss something that I'm more proud of. But something I'm particularly proud of, I think, as an organization is that we've changed our minds a bit. We've been at this for 20 years as a company, and it's easy to kind of get set in your ways and make some decisions a few years ago that you feel like need to stand forever because they were big decisions at the time. You know, about four or five years ago, we decided that we were going to become Basecamp and focus all of our energy basically on one product called Basecamp. And we have done that since. But earlier this year, we had a new idea that we just couldn't get out of our heads. We're currently working on another product, which we said, again, we would never do. So I'm proud of us for giving that a try, even though we said we wouldn't do it. And also, we're currently hiring a head of marketing, which is something we've never done before. And we're currently hiring a few other people. And we had a hiring freeze in place for a while. So we've been deciding to change our minds a lot lately. And I think that's a good thing. Hmm. Is it, um, and I was hoping to get to this later, but I guess it's relevant now. So do you go back and read your um, previous writing? And then if so, what is it that you've written about previously that you most disagree with now, uh, whether it's in your blog or your books or through Twitter? Is there anything that sticks out of your mind that's particularly something that you disagree with? I don't tend to go back and read things that I've written, mostly because I expect my mind to change. And I don't really feel like I need to go and like find something that I disagree with today. But certainly there's many decisions that I've made that I think maybe were the right decision at the time, but turned out over time, maybe not to be the right decision today. That happens frequently. I don't think of it really as the wrong decision. It's more like it was the right decision at the time and the time has changed. Mm. And so therefore today, like I may have a different point of view or the information's different or just our mood is different or our appetite is different, that sort of thing. So Yeah, I'm not really that interested in going back and making sure that I'm consistent or anything like that. Hmm. Do you find that it is more difficult to stay consistent with the ideas that you've presented if they are in writing and and, and published out there? Or is that something that you don't really consider? I just don't care. Yeah, I don't care. Like I, I expect people to develop and change their minds. So like I'm not interested in being consistent. I'm sort of interested in being as correct as I can be in the moment, given the information I have and the context and all those things. That's what I'm curious about, or that's what I've tried to do is try to be sort of, you know, as right as I can be most of the time, given what I know and given the situation. 
versus like saying, hey, I told you so 12 years ago or something like I, I don't really care about that sort of thing. I told you so is a bad thing to ever say or feel anyway to begin with. So, right. I mean, there's some principles I have, I would say are, are consistent and there's some points of view and some you know ethical decisions and things like that and morals and whatnot you have that you hope are consistent over time. But business decisions and, and things like that, like that's all about the moment. It's not about, you know, something you need to look back and improve that was right or wrong or something, you know, five years ago or whatever. Right. Yeah. And it's interesting that consistency bias is, is one that's, I think, stronger than people realize, especially those who, who write publicly. And there is a tendency to just continue with something just because you've written about it publicly and, and people need to, I think, fight against that more so than they believe that they do. So yeah, that's super interesting. Yeah, it's like I've said things and some people will point things out. So, well, you said something else before. It's like, yeah, I said something else before. This is what I'm saying now. Like, what does it matter what I said before? It matters what I said before at the moment, but it doesn't necessarily matter now. What matters now is like the information I have now and, and the decisions I'm making moving forward. So I think though, if like someone was to look at my record or whatever, if they really were into that sort of thing. I think good 80, 90% of the things I've believed, I continue to believe. But I think also there's a number of things that I've changed my mind on. And I think that's healthy. And if you don't change your mind and if you're focused on consistency, I think you're probably going to miss out on a lot of things. Yeah, for sure. Just going on that a little bit, is there other people out there that are either writers or in some way publicly visible that you don't miss in terms of their writings or their speeches or something like that? Is there someone that you follow regularly that you think other people should know about? I visit Daring Fireball, so John Gruber. I visit his site frequently. I love his writing. I've always liked Jason Kotke's writing, so at kotke.org. I really enjoy reading Andrew Sullivan, who's a political writer. I just like his writing style. He seems to consistently battle with himself about where he stands on things, and I think that that's really healthy. I love reading Warren Buffett's letters to shareholders. I think that's probably some of the best writing on an annual basis I've ever read from an individual. So I love reading his letter every year. I don't know. That's kind of a good set of people, I think, right there. there there's others, I'm sure. But I'm not really a big consumer of media. I don't regularly read magazines or um, newspapers or review sites or industry stuff. I like reading some people because I like the way they, they write. It's not even so much the subject matter sometimes. It's just like I, I really enjoy sentences. I really enjoy words. I enjoy putting things together. And so I, I like observing how other people write. Is that a conscious decision as a matter of just your time and protecting your time? Or do you have another reason for not consuming as much media? I would say a little bit of that. And also, I just don't feel the need to be up on everything. I, in fact, I, I prefer to miss out on most things. I'm not really interested in the information Olympics is what I kind of call it, which is everyone's competing to be on top of everything that's happening. Like people even ask me about stuff in our industry, like, hey, did you see that thing? My answer is usually no, didn't see it. What is it? Like, tell me about it. Or did you see what that person said about this? No, I, I really didn't. Tell me about it. And so like when there's something I'm supposed to have seen or should know about or whatever, I'll find out some other way. It's that important versus trying to stay on top of everything. I also, I don't really like to be influenced by my own industry. So I tend not to pay much attention to the industry in general. I'd rather come at it with a beginner's mind as much as I possibly can and just do what I think is right. I think in a way, the more you pay attention to your industry, the harder it is to be an individual, to be a fresh thinker. All these ideas have their own set of gravity. And I think your thoughts begin to um, get sucked up by these other ideas and, and you tend to sort of fall back towards what other people are doing. 
And so I just don't want to know, basically. Um, so I, I pay attention to other things. Like I pay attention to architecture. I, I love nature. I love going out for walks. I love reading a whole bunch of other things about science and all sorts of other topics that I'm interested in. But I try to stay away from my own industry in terms of being up to date on what's going on. Hmm. And so with that, obviously you have within your team, I'm sure you have people that are uh, trusted advisors and to be able to bounce ideas off of. And you mentioned you don't really consume other media, but is there a, a group of people or a specific person that you have that um, you do like to bounce ideas off of in terms of your own industry? Or, or is that specifically to like based on first principles that you said come up with just you as an individual? Or how does that work in terms of just sharing ideas within the space you're in? Yeah, I'd say there's a few people internally here at Basecamp where... Uh... If I'm working on an idea, you know, depending on where the idea is, I'll talk to different people about it. Some people I like to talk about like really raw early ideas with and other people I would hold off and sort of form it up a bit more before I share it. I just think different people have different perspectives that come in at different times and they're more valuable at different times. So some people are really good, I think, at refining an idea. Others are really good at seeing it in the early stages and knowing where it could go. Other people are really good at challenging an early idea in a way I think that's too forceful. Other people are really good at challenging ideas in the early days to help form them. So it sort of depends. So yeah, there's definitely a handful of people here that I, I'll share stuff with. It just depends on the stage of the idea. And of course, some people like, I'll just be talking about an idea and we'll, then we'll come up with something else together that's just totally different from what the initial idea was. So that happens as well. I don't believe in like the lone wolf kind of thing at all, but ideas come from somewhere. They'll start somewhere and then you can bring them to people and see where they take them or maybe they'll reinforce them or maybe they'll push them away or challenge them in other ways. But I do think it's important to have that. But yeah, I don't typically go outside the company for that sort of thing. Right. So it, it sounds like you have a lot of trust. Maybe this isn't the case, so you can correct me if I'm wrong, but trust in your own judgment and decision-making at this point. So things sort of, you take different variables and you, you kind of funnel them through and, and you make a judgment call based on those things. Have you found there's an effective way of getting better at that and getting better at, I guess, decision-making in general? Is it just time and practice that really forms the basis for your decision-making? Well, first, I think it's hard to get a bunch of things right in a row anyway. So, I mean, what I like to do is I kind of think in bets. I know there's a book out called Thinking in Bets, and that's not what I mean. But um, basically, every, every idea is, is a bet. And you just like, how confident are you in this bet? Some things are long shots. Some things are maybe more sure wins or whatever. It all depends on, on the scale of the bet and also the downside of it. So I tend to think a lot about asymmetric risk and like, well, if I get this right, what's the upside? And if I get it wrong, what's the downside? And if the downside's small and the upside's big, well, then it seems like it's probably worth trying. If the upside's small and the downside's huge, then maybe it's not worth trying. And just kind of think of things that way. As far as getting better at it, I don't know, it's probably a lifelong pursuit. I don't consider myself great at it. I just tend to try to make bets that I think are worth making. Something we talk a lot about internally is um, this idea of taking a risk without putting yourself at risk. So I'm not interested in putting myself at risk. I'm pretty risk averse in general. So if I'm going to make a bet or, or come up with an idea or whatever and go for it, like I want to make sure I understand the worst case scenario before we start. And in some cases, the worst case scenario is we spend 10 months or a year on something and it doesn't pan out. That's pretty bad, but that's not going to put us out of business. But if we're saying like, well, we're going to spend $50 million marketing this thing, that could be a bad move if it doesn't work out. And of course, I'm just exaggerating there. But 
that's how I approach these things. So everything's a degree of risk based on the downside and the upside potential, and then just feeling comfortable and confident. So like when we get things wrong, it doesn't hurt that bad is sort of the ultimate goal is of course to get it right. But if we get it wrong, it's okay. I want to be okay if we get things wrong. And that's kind of how I look at it. And of course, like we're in a different, maybe a different position than some, since we've been in business for a long time, we have a very stable business and we can absorb a lot of blows basically. But I've always felt this way. Like just want to know what the worst case scenario could be. And if I'm okay with that and the upside seems like it has enough potential, then I think it's worth giving it a shot. Of course, one other thing I would say is that you also have to weigh that against all the other things you could be doing too. So it's not just about that one idea and that one thing. It's like, well, if we do this over the next year, like what can't we do? So that's another part of the downside risk calculation. Like what's the opportunity cost here and is it worth it? And are we at the right moment in our company's history and time to do this, to leave this, to do that, kind of that sort of thing. So it is sort of looking at the big picture, but ultimately it's measuring the downside and measuring the upside and figuring out what's worth it. Mm. Yeah, no, it reminds me a little bit about what Charlie Munger and Warren talk about when they talk about their areas of competency and being really comfortable with the idea that they are understanding of the risk. And I think it sort of plays out into more things than just, you know, investing and decision making. And like you said, it seems like you just have to know and be very confident and comfortable with the risks involved before obviously being able to make a decision based on those risks. So I think a lot of things can be attributed to back there, their uh, circle of competence. Yeah. You know, it's not so much about even like how often are you right or whatever. It's like, just like how many mistakes can I make and still be standing? I'm sort of a little bit more interested in that, to be honest, because I would never expect to bat a perfect score or whatever, you know? So essentially gambling, right? You, you go gamble and you know, let's say you have a hundred bucks in your pocket. Well, you probably don't want to put a hundred bucks on your first bet because you lose that and it's over. You can't bet anymore. I want to be able to survive longer to have more chances to hit something that works. So that's kind of how I think about it. Yeah. I know that you don't like to maybe make roadmaps for the business and you've talked about that in your books before, but is there something that you would look back on in five years from now and deem yourself successful if you've accomplished that? And I guess the better way of asking that, is there a a broader mission or problem that you're looking to solve and uh, that you'd consider a success if you did make strides towards solving it? It's not really the way I I would look at it, I guess. I I would say, you know, the way I tend to evaluate success is basically, would I want to do that again? Like, would I want that to happen again? Would Mm -hmm. I want to go through that again? And, or am I enjoying it now? So for example, if we, if we make this, we, we are making this new product and if we launch it and three years down the road, I look back and go, that was worth it because we enjoyed the process and we're using it and a lot of people like it and the whole thing. That would be great. But like, for example, if it was a financial success, but we all hated supporting it and it was a huge pain in the ass to handle and all these things, it's like on paper, it's a success, but I wouldn't want to do that again. And there's been things we've done where we've built that have been on paper, very successful things, but we've decided to walk away from them because they just weren't what we wanted to do anymore. And so they were textbook successes, but in our world, they weren't something we didn't want to continue to do. So I would call them not failures by any means. It's not like that. It's just more like, just don't want to do that again, or just don't want to maintain this anymore, or just don't want to be involved anymore because our opinions have changed or our interests have changed or our focus has changed. So um, therefore, uh, let's let someone else do that. So I don't know. It's not about like in five years, do I hope a hundred million people know about Basecamp or use like it's, I don't think that way because you're just making stuff up then. It's more about like, do we enjoy that? Was that enjoyable? Is the company better? Are people here happier? Are we stronger as an organization? Those are the kinds of things. Of course, like 
we have to stay in business. So like it has to be financially successful as well, just to make it viable. But I'm more interested in looking back, if I'm going to look back at all and go, was that worth it? And like how to come up with the answer is a number of things. It's not just, you know, financial or it's not just users or it's not just like that. It's like, what, what did this do to the company? You know, we just released this book yesterday called Shape Up. And I wrote the forward. Ryan Singer wrote the book. I wrote the forward. And part of the forward is all about how people often like to say execution is everything. But I don't, I don't think that's true because you can execute something perfectly, but you can destroy your company. You can destroy the morale. Like the product in the end can be great, but the process to get there could have ruined and wrecked friendships and working relationships. Morale could be destroyed. People could be ground down. So it's not just about the execution. It's about how you got there too. And that's a big part of it for us. Was that, and just going on the, the shape up thing, well, I was just actually looking at that and reading it and it's as always a super enjoyable read. So we'll link to that as well. But uh, part of the process, as you said, was the idea that you know success isn't necessarily measured by the financial piece of it, but also the fact that your company is happy and, and you guys still enjoy your work. Is that something that you learned by trial and error, or was that just something that you picked up as sort of the no-brainer thing to do? And I guess my question is, why is that not more widely adopted within especially tech, but just business in general? I think I probably saw it on the personal side of things. First, I've met a lot of textbook successful people who are absolutely miserable. And so they've amassed their fortune and they've done all that and they're miserable. Or they just want more and more and more and they're never satisfied. And you see that enough and you go, I don't, I don't want that to be me. It doesn't mean that it has to be, but like I've run into enough of them that I detect a bit of a pattern that when you're just after that, when you're measuring yourself in that way, it's ultimately pretty hard to be satisfied. And also, you know, we've been in business now for 20 years. This is our 20th year in business. If you want to build a long-term sustainable business, which is what we want to do, you have to enjoy the work. It doesn't mean you have to love your job every day or anything like that, but, but on balance, you have to enjoy the work, enjoy the process, and, and enjoy essentially doing what you do every day for the long term. And I think if you're just chasing numbers, it's, it's ultimately hard to enjoy it when things go well and things go wrong and all those things because you're just looking at the numbers versus looking at the overall impact it's having on you. And so I don't know. I don't want to make it sound like there's some deep philosophy here other than it's just kind of baseline basics, which is I want to hopefully enjoy what I'm doing more often than I'm not. Um, I want to do it for a long period of time. And in order to want to do that for a long period of time, you have to be motivated by something beyond money because frankly... I'm independently wealthy now. I've made more money than I'll need. So that certainly better not be the motivation here because if that's the motivation, then then I'm out of it. I'm out of motivation. So you got to find some other things. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Have you seen it broadly get better in terms of that mindset and shift away from the numbers chasing and the amassing fortune and wealth as sort of the number one motivator for people to be in business? Is that something that you've seen a trend against or is that still the case with most tech entrepreneurs and people involved in business that that's the motivation as opposed to this sort of long-term sustainable business model? Let's be in business for in the next 20 years. It, it, have you seen any change there? I think it's gotten worse. Yeah, I do because um, a lot of the focus these days is on, there's even terms like unicorn wasn't like a term, you know, 10 years ago or whatever, probably like there's terms for these companies that have outsized gains and have grown so fast. And it seems like that's what everyone wants to be, at least in our community, in the tech, you know, community, they want to be the next big, huge thing. And there's so much money out there. 
backing so many companies and there's so many more ways to raise money and get money. And I've just seen it get worse. And I don't think it's going to get better for a while, unfortunately, until there's a shakeout. I think the current generation of entrepreneurs, let's say younger ones in their 20s, they haven't gone through a shakeout yet. And I think until you do, you probably don't recognize some of those lessons. You haven't learned them yet. We've been through like in 2001 or 2000, it's kind of a downturn there. And then in 2008, a downturn, there's been other little micro turns here and there. So like we've kind of seen a few of those and, and you sort of expect them over time. I think a lot of people these days don't expect that to ever happen again. They think that now it's different, that there'll never be a downturn, never be a downtime and let's just like go, go, go. And so I think that there's gonna be a rude awakening at some point for that group of people. But I also think that the media is, gosh, I hate blaming things on the media. It's so easy. But I mean, all the stories are about, you know, raising money and, and raising money is not a news story. Saying I can't do this, we're not generating enough revenue to support our business ourselves. So we have to go out and raise a bunch of money. I don't know why that's a story. Maybe it should be a story if you've done something with that money, perhaps, and turned it into something bigger and better and sustainable. Like that's a story. But there's stories about raising money everywhere all the time now. And it seems like it's inseparable to talk about business or like making products and building a big business just seems like they're the same thing and they're not the same thing. Like you can build products and build a nice small business. But for a lot of people, that just doesn't seem like it's enough. And I think it's unfortunate that that's the trend. So we'll see what happens over time. What do you think from your perspective? Do you think it's getting better or worse or do you think it's not even an issue or... Yeah, well, having been in the industry and, and been working where I am for not very long, you know, I don't have that thing to compare it to, to when a time where it wasn't like that. So for me, it's hard to judge that where there's sort of the progress of uh, how things are going there. But it's interesting to think about because when I was in high school, I uh, read a bunch of articles and I was interested in, in, in a large degree with what was going on in tech. And I didn't really understand the finance piece of it. And so when I was reading these things, I would see these headlines of people saying, X company raised $35 million, let's say, uh, in whatever round. And uh, I thought, again, not having any idea of how it worked, I was like, oh, these people have just made $35 million. Right. They was like, oh, they're, they're rich now. They've made that money. And then, so I think that in itself, and again, I, I don't know if I'm an outlier there or not, but it's sort of that mindset of that's what success is. And that's what you should be striving towards. It's not a healthy environment, I don't think. I agree. And yeah, it does seem that it's easy to think that, that Oh, you raised money, meaning like now you've got that, that you've earned it and you could like close up shop and now you're, you're worth 35 million or whatever. You know, that money's actually, in, in a sense, that money is debt. I mean, you don't have to pay it back in almost all those cases, but you do have to do something now. The whole aim is to turn that money, which is someone else's money, into a lot more money for those other people. Right. And so you're obligated now to do that. It's not um, cash in your pocket. It's an obligation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and it's step one, as opposed to the final goal. That's what I was confused about, maybe, was that there's a lot more. That's that's the start of your journey. If that's the way that you decide to even go with your journey with entrepreneurship through your writing, you've mentioned a few times and talked a lot about the fact that that's not necessarily the way to go in a lot of cases, uh, that just to take money, just for the taking money. So One other thing I wanted to quickly add, I'm sorry, just real quick, one other thing I wanted to add is that I think what's also happened and I think it's important for employees to ask themselves this um, as well, wherever they work, which is, are you working for a business, a company, or are you working for a financial instrument? I think a lot of businesses, a lot of companies these days in the tech world have become financial instruments. They only exist to be bought or sold, kind of like a loan or a bond or you know anything like that. Like they're traded, basically. And someone thinks they're getting it a lower value than someone else who thinks they're getting a higher value. And it's just like a financial deal versus actually like making something. And 
caring about the customers you have and caring about the employees you have and that sort of thing. So I, I think there are businesses and there's companies. I think that's one spectrum. Then there's the financial instruments. And a lot of businesses these days, especially when they raise a bunch of money right up front, they're financial instruments. They're not companies in most cases. Yeah, it's interesting to think about it that way. And I haven't heard it really framed in that way before, but it does make sense, especially if there's a clear exit strategy for the founders. And, and I even see companies that that's been communicated, like we're built to sell, I guess. So I wanted to talk to you because you've been so outspoken about a lot of different issues and so um, public with your writing and things like that. And when I'm reading these things, and for the listener, I'm, I'm a huge fan and I've uh, been following you for a long time. So it's been a pleasure to be able to talk with you here. And I feel a little bit like I can't really understand how I got here. But anyways, when I'm reading your stuff, it seems like it's so obvious and so straightforward and so simple. And I think that's why a lot of people are attracted to what you write about. Why do you think you're an outlier here uh, in the way that you've communicated publicly and built the business? And it seems like you're still an outlier, even though it's been shown through your work with Basecamp and you personally that this works. The system works and it might be harder to do it the way that you're doing it, but it works. So why is it that not very many other companies are building their businesses like you've built yours? Well, to be honest, it's baffling. Well, actually, let me step back. That's kind of unfair. In fact, we are not the outliers. We are as mainstream as it gets when it comes to business. 99% of all businesses are just like ours, which is that we need to make more money than we spend. We need to be responsible with our money. Um, We need to generate our money through selling things to customers and taking good care of them. The dry cleaner on the corner, they have to make more money than they spend when they go out of business. The pizzeria on the corner, they have to make more money than they spend when they go out of business. Same with us. We have to make more money than we spend or we go out of business. Like We're as simple as it gets in terms of how a company is run. And this is how almost every company in the world is run. Venture-backed companies are the extreme exception. So it's, it's funny because in our industry, it seems like we're outliers. But actually, if you zoom out further and just say, like, let's forget tech industry. Let's just like talk about business. We're as boring as it gets. So that's kind of how I would actually answer that. But I am surprised that more people in our industry don't see that. I think it's because the allure of becoming the billionaire or whatever is it's appealing. I get that. When everyone's running around, is, you know, especially when people live in San Francisco and they see so much wealth and money in terms of tech people and whatever, and you know, this company just minted a thousand millionaires or whatever. Like, I get it. Like, I get why you want to be part of that. Of course, I understand that. But it's such an outlier, really. And if you have a broader perspective, you realize that it's an extreme outlier, and you're probably better off getting in with a company that's going to be around and you're going to have a, a good job and have reasonable hours and be able to have a life as well. I think that's the bigger thing. So. I also think there's a lot of quiet companies like ours in our industry that just don't talk about it because they don't need to. They're just doing their own thing and they don't need to make a point. They don't need to prove themselves. They're just out there generating more revenue than they spend. And they're taking home salaries that are supporting their family and providing salaries for other families and just doing their thing day to day. Just like you don't hear the pizzeria on the corner bragging about how they work and how they're structured. They just do their job. I think there's a lot of that going on as well. Hmm. You started this early on, it, it appears. So why did you and David decide to go this route with it and be more vocal about the things that you dislike within the industry and, and talk about your failures? So why was that decision made? Well, there's a number of reasons. Number one, we don't do traditional marketing in, in a traditional sense. So like for us, being outspoken has always been a way to be noticed and to get our point across and to be heard and to be discussed. And everything we say, we say because we believe it. We don't say it to get a response, but we know that if we don't hold back, it's typically good for business, let's say. But also, I feel like we have a responsibility to share, We, especially in an industry that is apparently so opposite our point of view. 
at least the part of it that gets attention. Like I said, there's probably lots and lots of companies like ours and in the world, most people are like us in terms of business owners. But in our, in our industry, it doesn't seem that way. So we, we feel like it's really important to be the counterpoint because the point is pretty obvious. Everyone knows what the point is in our industry. Everyone's talking about raising money and getting big and growing as big as they can and having power. So like, who's the counterpoint? Well, someone's got to stand up for that and show people that there's another way. And we strongly believe in it. So we like to share, we like to write, we like to talk and teach and share examples of how we do things. So it's a combination of things, I would say. But it goes back to the early days of the company, which is like, if we're going to talk about something amongst ourselves, why not just talk about it for anyone to listen, anyone to listen in? And also, you know, if we've learned something, I think people have a responsibility to share what they've learned. Some people are obviously more comfortable sharing it than others. We're pretty comfortable sharing what we've learned. And that's just sort of how that goes and why we continue to do it. This latest thing we put out, Shape Up, people have been asking us for years about how we work, like specifically how we work. And we've put together blog posts, we've done conferences and workshops and stuff, but we never put together it's been a long time since we put together something as detailed as this. I think the last time was Getting Real, which was back in 2006. It was a much more broad strokes. This is a really detail-oriented, like here's exactly how we decide to work and build features and build products and stuff. So part of it too is just like we're asked all the time about it and we might as well put it together in a format that other people can take away and learn from and, and we don't have to give the same answers over and over. We can say, here, here's this thing, check it out. And this is actually a better answer than we would ever be able to give you right on the spot. Yeah. And it probably has the added benefit as well of, of bringing great people within the base camp sort of umbrella and getting people excited about base camp in general. And I think that was showcased with the latest hiring that you just did that um, the amount of people that that were looked like they responded was pretty phenomenal and the culture piece of uh, remote work especially and and I've talked to a lot of people about what culture is and and how to um, build a culture and hear a lot of different things so I was wondering if and it doesn't look like you've written anything about this specifically. Uh, you did have a piece on culture and, and rework, uh, but you didn't really expand as much on it. Well, first, how do you build a culture, in your opinion? Is that even the right way to think about it? And has your opinion changed seeing as you are a distributed team uh, when it comes to culture? I think, first off, you have values, and then you try to live by those values. But ultimately, culture is not something you build or create. It's a byproduct. Mm. Uh, I think culture is a byproduct of consistent behavior. And here we go with the word consistent again, but like consistent in terms of like, let's call it the last few years, like that level of consistency, not like forever. But basically, what are you doing over and over and over again? Because that's ultimately what your culture is. So if you say that you do one thing, but you actually do something else, the culture is based on what you do, not what you say. And I think that that's where people often get culture wrong is they put sayings up on the wall and they profess to believe one thing or whatever, but that's not actually how it is. And I'm sure there's things about our company that are like that too, where we talk about being calm and keeping things under control. And I'm certain, and I know, in fact, there's moments when that's not true. So like, if that's not true all the time, then our culture is not one of calm. If it's not true occasionally, then our culture is probably still one of calm, but with some blips here and there. And so it's just about like a trailing, it's almost like a 50-day moving average, but let's call it like a two-year moving average. That's really what your culture is. We're thoughtful about our values and we're thoughtful about reinforcing those values. And values, I guess, change over time, but fundamentally, a lot of them are pretty similar or have been for a long time. Keeping the company as small as possible, keeping teams small, not having meetings, making sure everyone's days are basically full eight hours of themselves. Um, like that kind of stuff. And, and of course, some of those are more specific than values, more broadly defined, but basically letting people run their own day, having a full day to themselves. Like that's a value. We believe that's important. 
to have people be able to do that if we want them to only have to work eight hour days or 40 hour weeks. Like you can't expect someone to work 40 hour weeks if you take half their day away from them and then expect them to get 40 hours worth of work done in 20 hours. Like that's just, that's not reasonable. So being reasonable and, and being honest about this stuff is important to us. So anyway, I think culture basically is the, yeah, the byproduct of consistent behavior. It changes over time. And as you change in size, it changes as well. And also as your makeup changes. So um, to your point about remote, we've primarily always been a majority remote company. We have uh, about 13 or 14 people in Chicago and the rest, uh, we have about 54 people in the company right now. So the rest, the other 40 or so are spread out across 35 cities or so. We've always been majority remote. So that hasn't really changed for us so much, but there's a little bit that has changed in terms of actual like remote used to be just within the United States. And now it's, you know, Canada and Europe and Asia and Australia. And, you know, there's people in now South America as well. Uh, we have people kind of all over the world. So there's some cultural changes that come from that and just managing time zones and some of that stuff and expectations around when someone's going to get back to you and who should be working together. There needs to be enough overlap and some of that stuff. But that's more about a way of working and less about like actual culture. I don't know. Hopefully that somewhere in that long rambling answer, I gave you something that, <laughs> that makes sense, but that's, that's how we think about it. I would say another change for us is like we put together actually a physical handbook. Well, it's a virtual, it's type, it's text, you know, it's not permanent, but we wrote a handbook recently and we've been editing it and modifying it over time, which is something we didn't have up until just a few years ago. And we didn't have it because we didn't feel like we needed it and we were smaller, but also we probably did need it, even though we didn't feel like we did. Once we got to a certain size, it was important to codify some ways in which we work and some of the important values that we have. That had been like an oral tradition, basically, and we just felt like it was time to, to write it down. So everybody knew where it was and knew where to find it. And we also made it public, which is part of who we are as well. Our employee handbook is completely public. If you search for Basecamp Employee Handbook, you'll find it on Google. It's a, hosted on GitHub. And it's uh, ever-changing. And so we want to make sure that how we act in private is how we act in public and that the public essentially can hold us to that. And everyone can hold us to that by seeing what we say and making sure we do what we say, that sort of thing. Mm. Yeah, the holding you to that is one that I'm sure is paid off for you as a company. And just to make you and your team better by exposing what it is that you believe in to the broader public and seeing you know, what the response is. But when you do that, and when you've come up with something within your team that you think is important and relevant, and you put it out there, do you pay attention to the response at all? Or is that not something you look at? Is it just for other people's benefit? Um, I think it's impossible to avoid paying attention to the response but I don't get in arguments. I think I used to get in arguments, but I've sort of realized I'm not interested in trying to convince anybody of anything. I'll put something out there to hopefully maybe change their mind or give them a new... Actually, I shouldn't say that. I don't want to do the mind changing. I can't do the mind changing. There's no such thing. You can't change someone else's mind. What you can do is put information out there, hopefully in a way that's clear enough that can get to somebody and then they can think it through if they're interested in thinking about it and curious and motivated to think about it. If they're struggling with the way they do things, they might be more open, more motivated to change something about the way they do things and put it out there. But like probably earlier in my career, I used to probably fight more and argue more with people. I don't see the point. And occasionally like an argument still bubbles up out of me and like I find myself regretting it the next morning. So yeah, I'm aware of the response to things, but I don't go, oh, these seven people, like they don't get it. I'm going to convert them. I'm going to change their minds by like arguing better than they are. It's just, it's not worth it. It's also not possible. It's not worth the energy. So, so yeah, I, I think that's the extent of it. To be honest, I kind of wish that like, for example, on Twitter, I don't like how anyone can get in your face basically by just at mentioning you and get in your feed. So I tend not to read my timeline anymore on Twitter because, you know, first of all, it's a terrible medium to even try to argue anything. 
I use it more for like publishing ideas and less about really like going back and forth with people about them, even though I do occasionally. But I, I just try to avoid that impulse. But of course, if you just pay attention at all, you're sort of aware of how things are received. So just on the line of remote work for a second, I know that it'd be remiss if I didn't talk a little bit more about remote work with you, especially seeing as this is a remote work podcast. So I know that you guys have been doing the, the remote work thing for so long and you're one of the first movers there and, and uh, really vocal about the benefits. But how do you fight against those negative things that come along with remote work in terms of isolation and the communication piece of it? Obviously, you know, you guys are your experts on that area with through Basecamp, but how have you learned to cope with some of the negative components of remote work and one of the big ones being isolation within your team? It's a challenge that we still battle or struggle with. I don't like using military terms. We wrote that in our last book too, how people use all these military terms like battle and conquer and whatever. It's like, whoa. Let's slow down on that. So we struggle with it too. And um, I think it's natural. I don't think it will ever go away for people. I mean, some people really truly like to be alone all day and just focus on their work. And then when they're done with work, they'll be with whoever they want to be. So some people really excel there, but most people need some more human interaction and not just virtual. So we try to pay more attention to that. We've been paying more attention to that recently than we have in the past. A few employees have brought it up. And so I think the best we can do is, you know, we do have a few in-person meetups during the year. We try and do more video conferencing than we did in the past. Even though it's not the same, it's certainly better than text for a lot of people just to kind of feel a connection. But also being willing to listen and to acknowledge the fact that remote work can be very isolating. It informs a hiring process, let's say. So I think we're a little bit more careful about making sure that the people we hire remotely are really well prepared for that kind of work. Some people who've never done it before, of course, there's a first time for everything and you got to give people a chance to do something for the first time. But I think we're a little bit more careful about really asking those kinds of questions about like, how do you feel about that? Do you really get a lot of energy from being in a physical office space with others? Like just trying to understand them a little bit more because I don't want to put them in a bad situation. And I'm certainly, they don't want to be in a bad situation. And some people are willing to give it a shot and they're totally able to do it, but others are not. So just being more careful about it rather than assuming like anyone can do it. It's about, can you thrive in it? I think that's the more interesting question. And we want to find people who can thrive in it and not just put up with it. So yeah, it's challenging, acknowledging this challenging, figuring out some ways that different people deal with it. Sometimes it's not just about seeing their coworkers, but it's just about seeing other humans. So hey, if you want to see more other humans, here's some ways to do that. If you need to see your coworkers, maybe we can do more video stuff. Maybe you can come to Chicago a couple more times a year if you feel like that might be a little bit more helpful. Hey, there's someone else that works for us nearby. Maybe once a month, you guys could you know hang out for a few days. I don't know. There's a variety of different ways to do it, but you have to be conscious of it and not assume that everyone's going to thrive in that environment. We recently had someone who left. She left for a couple other reasons, but one of the reasons she left was like she was surprised. She'd worked remotely before, but not truly remotely. She, like She worked in a remote office of a company that had their headquarters in another city, but there was other people that she worked with physically. And she was a little bit surprised by how isolating it was just to work from home by herself. That was just kind of a little bit of a shock for her. You know, it's good to hear that because it's true. It's true. It is It is a shock. It can be a shock. And people who, who advocate remote working shouldn't be standing out there going like, this is the best thing in the world and it's for everybody. I do believe most jobs can be done remotely, but a job is not a person. It's a matter of can people thrive in that environment. And this might be too broad of a question, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Where does remote work as a concept, as a phenomenon, go from here? Do you think that this continues on in the trajectory that it is and it, it just keeps growing and growing? Or as people get involved and learn more about it, does the office become more of a important component of it? Um, and, and what do you think the factors there are when it comes to remote work? 
I think it's going to ebb and flow. I mean, every once in a while you hear about some big company that used to be remote that pulled everyone back in. And then that's the big news story for a while, which scares everyone away from remote work. And then you hear about companies like Stripe now is opening a new office, but that office is remote. So that gives people hope again. It kind of goes back and forth. And then, you know, we've been big advocates and, you know, you guys are on the job board that's, uh, we, we work remotely, which is a big deal for remote workers and that community. So like, I think it ebbs and it flows. And I think it'll probably continue to do that, but it's getting more expensive to be in a lot of places. Like Silicon Valley is just extreme cost of living there. And in New York, it's incredibly high. And at some point, some companies are going to go, I just can't get enough people to live here and work here. And there's great people who are elsewhere. Why would I want to close myself off to hiring great people just because they don't live near me? Like that doesn't make any sense. Or some people might work for these companies and go, look, I'm working really hard. I'm getting great salary, but I can't save a penny because like my costs are just out of control and I'm not living exorbitantly. I'm just like, cost of living is too high. I need to move and they're going to start losing people. And so I think that that's going to open up more companies to realize that there are other parts of the world or the country or the state or wherever you are. There are great people everywhere. There are great opportunities to hire those people and for those people to thrive. And not everybody needs to be in the same room. So I think more and more companies will experiment. Some are going to make it work and some are not. I think the way in which they try to experiment has a lot to do with it. For example, if you're 50 people locally and you try to hire your first remote employee, so you have 51 and 50 are local and one's remote, like that's probably not going to work. If you take your 50 people and say, we want to start to consider hiring remotely. So over the next six months, we want to basically have a virtual remote company and that even though we're all together here, maybe three days a week or one day a week, we're going to work from home and start to get used to working remotely. I think that's a better approach. So it's not just the concept, it's how you approach it that has a lot to do with whether or not it works. I'm hopeful that more and more companies begin to experiment with it, but certainly there will be some high profile flameouts and then that'll scare some people away. I also think it's probably generational, uh, you know, and, and maybe over the next 10, 20 years, more people will be more open to it. So yeah, that's my general take. I've also heard that companies or investors tend to not like the idea of hiring a remote workforce. And I don't know exactly what the reason is there. Maybe it's because this is an investment for them and there's too much of a risk potentially with the idea of having a distributed workforce and they don't know about it. Maybe it's a knowledge thing, but I have heard that as a potential blocker for a lot of founders for starting remote companies or starting companies is that their backers don't want them to hire remote workers. So, which is interesting too, because I mean, if you look at a lot of the the balance sheets of remote companies, it's a lot stronger because they don't have that massive, you know, rent expenditure on their P&L. But anyways, that's an interesting counterpoint, I think too, is that maybe it's just fear and maybe the work that you guys are doing to be more vocal about the positive aspects of it and the fact that it works, maybe that's going to be encouraging for people who are founding companies moving forward. Yeah, I can understand why it's scary. If you've done something your whole life one way and then all of a sudden there's this new way, it's naturally human reaction to be like, whoa, wait a second, I don't trust that way or I don't know that way or I don't believe that way or why should I do that, let them do that. Like, I get it, it's totally just a human thing. So I think the best way to do that is just to try it. And that's the thing. I think the scary thing is hiring a remote employee the first time. But if you have local employees, just make them remote employees for one day a week, one day a month even. Like just 12 times a year, let people work from home. Just kind of get used to it and go, you know what? The sky's not falling. The company's not going out of business. And in fact, you know what? People seem to like this. And you know what? People are getting more work done and there's fewer distractions and the whole thing. So I think anyone can experiment with this without having to go out and hire somebody and then like try to feel like you have to learn everything on the fly with someone new. And then maybe if that doesn't work out, then you're like, well, why would I want to try that again? Like I just totally miserably failed. I hired someone remotely. It didn't work. 
this doesn't work. I mean, I think you got to step into it a little bit differently. And I think then you'll have some confidence and realize that, hey, this could work. And then maybe six months or a year from now, you're ready to maybe hire that first remote employee after you've basically simulated a remote workforce for a while. That's the approach I would take if you want to work your way into it. Yeah, I also think that the technology itself will get better. And I know there's a few companies out there that are working on different products, uh, like physical products, to, to make it as if you're standing or sitting in the room with them. So I think the technology will get better and there'll be companies and services that pop up around remote work that'll just make it easier. So uh, that's a big piece of it, I think, too, is just there's going to be more things to support the idea of a distributed team. I hope so. Although I will say that I think there's a danger in trying to simulate the worst parts of an office environment, which is it's so easy to pull people into meetings. It's so easy to stop people from doing what they're doing. Like when you're remote, it's a little bit easier to hide from those distractions not always, but a little bit easier. And I think that that's actually an advantage. So I, I'm worried that it's going to become like you're basically there. I don't think you want everyone to be there. I think that's part of the problem. Everyone's so close, it's too easy to be pulled away from your work. So, but anyway, I think there needs to be a balance. And certainly I, I'm excited to see what technology can do. I mean, video conferencing has been a big deal. So, like, what's the next level there? Is it better or worse? I don't know. Sometimes it's worse when it's more physical. It's better when it's clearly like just a video conference versus the expectation that you're actually like fake sitting in a room kind of thing. But who knows? We'll see how it all shakes out. I'm glad people are at least working on the problem or not even the problem, working on the concern, seeing if there's something to be done there. Yeah, for sure. Well, Jason, you've been so generous with your time uh, and I want to be cognizant of it. I do have a couple more closing questions here for you. The first one is actually more specific to you as an individual and just because I know that you are uh, a watch guy and, and you like watches. So if you were to wear one watch for the rest of your life, what watch would that be? <laughs> well, I can tell you what my favorite watch is. I don't know if I'd want to wear it forever, but let's say my favorite watch is a 1957 Rolex Milgauss 6541 is the is the model number. That's like my favorite overall watch design ever. If I owned one and I had to give away, let's say I owned 50 watches and I had to give them all away, that's the one I would keep. Let's just say that. So that is one that you already own or is that a dream watch? I own one of those. I've had it for a while. It's one of my favorites, but it's uh, it's not something I wear very often because it's it's funny. It's unfortunately become very valuable. And what I mean by unfortunate is like I'm afraid to wear it sometimes and I, I don't like that becomes irresponsible at some point to wear things like that. Hmm, gotcha. So my next question is, if you weren't an entrepreneur, what would you be doing? It's funny. I'd actually like not to be sometimes. <laughs> Let's say I didn't have to worry about money or something like that. Let's just say that wasn't a concern. I would love to take up pottery like in a serious way. I would love just all day to get behind a, a wheel and throw pots all day. I think that would be an incredible thing. Either that or um, a landscape architect or a gardener kind of person. I just, I love that as well. So those would be two things I'd, I would love to do. Do you do those things already sort of in your spare time or is that um, not on the agenda quite yet? The gardening and landscape architecture stuff. Yes. I mean, not the landscape architecture stuff as much, but I, I'm involved in restoring a bunch of land that I own up in Wisconsin. So that's like a really fun, long-term 10, 20, 30 year project. So I'm involved with that. And then like locally gardening in my house. I'm really into that. 
Pottery, I've taken a few lessons and I know I love it and I love ceramics. I love looking at and buying certain ceramics and stuff, but I don't know how to do it really. So that would be something I'd have to learn. I'd love to dedicate a year to becoming really good at that. Fascinating. I know I, I hear you on the gardening piece. Gardening is one of my passions as well. And it's endlessly interesting. And I'm lucky enough to be able to do it where I am right now. So it's something that I love because it's not something that I can ever be distracted with a phone while doing. Right. There's something about the soil and being close to it and the plants and the variety and it's just lovely and it's so calming. I don't know. For me, it's heaven basically just to be out there in the garden. Yeah, definitely is. Definitely is. So my last question here before I let you go, Jason, is my favorite one. And it's it's actually kind of a riff off of the one that clearly asked everybody on her podcast. What is the best advice you've ever been given? And and that can be in, in business or in life, but just uh, what, what's the best advice you've ever been given? Well, we've been mostly talking about business this, this show. I'll, I'll just give you business advice. My dad gave me this, I don't know when, but long, long time ago. He said, no one ever went broke making a profit. And that's probably my favorite business advice ever. Life advice, I have to figure that over. But business advice, clearly that's, that's it for me. Hmm. Well, maybe what we'll do is we'll uh, shoot you an email afterwards and you can ponder the life advice one and we'll put that in the show notes. Great. Jason, again, thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. I know that um, our listeners will definitely appreciate me being able to pick your brain and and I have a whole bunch more questions for you. So maybe down the line, we'll be able to do another one. But um, before we go, is there, obviously we want people to check out Basecamp. We want people to follow you on Twitter and, and, and all the rest of that. But is there anything else, anywhere else you want to be sending people? Yeah. So, you know, the new book we just launched called Shape Up. And then also we have our own podcast called Rework, the Rework podcast. It's at rework.fm. So R-E-W-O-R-K.fm. And we talk a lot about the things that we kind of talked about here uh, at length on our own podcast. So please do check that out as well. Yeah, that's kind of it. Otherwise, like socially, I'm only on Twitter. I don't do Facebook or, or Instagram or I'm on LinkedIn, but I don't really check it. So Twitter's probably the best way to publicly get a hold of me if you want to argue about something and I will not argue back. <laughs> yeah, don't argue, but definitely follow Jason. We, um, I know it's a great form of inspiration for us and for me specifically. So um, yeah, definitely do that. And we'll link to all the kind of stuff on the show notes, especially the newer book. And uh, and also, if I didn't even mention that it doesn't have to be crazy at work. Yeah. Great book as well. So thank you. We'll make sure we'll link out to that. Cool. Jason, thanks again. I appreciate it so much. And we'll talk again soon. Yeah, anytime. Thanks so much. Bye. Thanks so much again for listening to the show. Be sure to check out WeWorkRemotely.com for the latest remote jobs. And if you're looking to hire a remote worker, WeWorkRemotely is the fastest and easiest way to do so. As always, if you have someone that we should talk to, any advice you have, or if you'd like to advertise on the podcast, please reach out to us at podcast at WeWorkRemotely.com. That's podcast at WeWorkRemotely.com. Thanks so much again for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.